And I said, Lord, this, having to get my glasses all the time, put them on to read and to, when you preach, I said, God, it's just getting hard because I, I, you know, I don't always, I'm not one of these conscientious guys who can put them on and take them off to talk and put them on to take them off. I'm not like that. So, Lord, you've got to do something. You've got to heal me. So God gave me, uh, a, he healed me. He healed me of, of, of my impartial eyesight. How did he do that, you may ask? Very good question. Glad you asked me. He gave me a large print Bible and a bigger face tablet. So there you go, I'm now officially glasses free. <coughs> so anybody else out there struggling with your eyesight, before you, before you just, we just got to tick through the things. First of all, the arms, the, the original problem we all know is that the arms are not long enough. It's the, my, my, my guy said, your eyesight's perfect, it's the arm length is a the problem. They're not growing anymore, therefore we'll need to put glasses on. It's not the eyes, it's the arms. Uh, we sorted that out. <coughs> But uh, now I've got a creative way and I'm cured. You just get a bigger print Bible. You can get print so large nowadays. Some Bibles I saw had two words per page. That's how big it was. A lot of pages, a lot of volumes to carry around. But um, it's worth it, okay? Large print Bible, bigger screen tablet, loving it. Now I just got this, this upgraded one so it keeps blacking out on me. So I don't know how you... Yeah, I'm not techno. I don't know how you set a timer on it so it stays open for the whole time. So we'll see what happens. I may lose my way, but uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see where we end up. <coughs> A burglar broke into a house one night and he shined his flashlight around looking for valuables. He picked up a CD player and placed it in his sack and all of a sudden, a strange disembodied voice echoed from the dark and the voice said, Jesus is watching. He nearly jumped out of his skin, clicked the flashlight off and froze. When he heard nothing more after a bit, he shook his head, promised himself a vacation after the next big score, clicked the light on and began searching for more valuables. Just as he pulled the stereo out so he could disconnect the wires, clear as a bell, he hears these words, Jesus is watching. He freaks out, he shines a light around frantically, looking for the source of the voice. Finally, in the corner of the room, his flashlight beam comes to rest on a parrot in a cage. He looks at the parrot and he says, did you say that? Yep, the parrot confesses, and he squawked. I'm just trying to warn you. The burglar relaxes. He says, warn me, huh? Who in the world are you? And the parrot replies, I'm Moses. Moses, the burglar laughs. What kind of idiots would name their bird Moses? Bird replies, the same kind of idiots that named their Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> Put the stereo down, run out the door, take off. <coughs> We've been looking at images of God, the Father, for the last few weeks. We had a bit of a break last week with the dedication. We've been looking at... Uh, what does God look like? You know, the world has all kinds of different images of God. In John 14, 9, Jesus makes this amazing statement. He says, if you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. If we want to get a really good image of who the Father is, then the starting point for us is to learn to look at the person of Jesus Christ. You know, for many of us, because of our upbringing and the way we were raised and so on, and the way society is, when we think about Father, our, our natural starting point is usually our earthly father. That's where we first go in our conscious brain. Uh, or our mother, for that matter. I think when, when God's referred to as a father, it has, that word father has parental qualities. It's not just all father, as in masculine. It's, 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 it's a parental quality. It's that oversight of authority over our lives. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. On another occasion, Jesus' disciples came to him and they said to him, Jesus, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. This is the first time that they had approached Jesus. What they were saying in essence was, was, was you know, 
John's disciples knew how to approach God, to, to sort of go past John to God, to have that personal relationship with him. We want you to teach us how to have that relationship with the Father. And Jesus starts, the very first thing he says to them is this. He says, okay, when you pray, do this. Our Father, who is in heaven. Our Father. What he was saying to them was, if you're going to learn to approach God, the first thing you need to understand is that you're approaching a Father. Some of us struggle with that. The very word Father conjures up all kinds of images and thoughts about perhaps what our earthly fathers were like. Um, uh, it, it brings up questions of authority, brings up questions of control, brings up questions of discipline, questions of love, questions and images of acceptance, and a whole rasp of things. And so what we've been doing the last probably month or so is we've been looking at some of the most common sort of misconceptions that people have about God. Knowing that if we really want to get a proper picture of who God is, Jesus himself, one man in, in, in human history, was bold enough to go, if you want to know who he is, I am here right now as an example for you to look at. So often we look at peripheral characters and peripheral images to know who God the Father is, yet Jesus was the one man that said, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we've been working our way through a few common misconceptions, and um, we, we last two weeks ago we looked at uh, God is a Santa Claus. The week before that, we looked at God the Father is a killjoy. Is he a cosmic killjoy? And we dispelled that myth by looking at what that means and then looking at the person of Jesus. You can go back on iTunes and listen to some of these. And two weeks ago, we looked at God as a Santa Claus, this idea that, that he's there making a list of naughty and nice. And if you're on the nice list, then he comes to you and he gives you presents and blesses you. But if you're on the naughty list, he just flies straight over your roof and you get nothing out of God if you're naughty. It's very much a performance. Santa Claus is the most performance-based picture, I think, that we can have in in humankind. Is If you do well, you'll get. If you don't, you won't. Is God really like that? So we went back and we looked at Jesus. Is Jesus like that? And I think we hopefully dispelled that myth. This week, I want to talk about one that's fairly similar to that, but a little bit different. And it's this, that God is an angry judge. Is God an angry judge? You know, the big guy in the sky with a gavel in his hand. He's already got it raised. doesn't matter what your defense is. He's already got it raised. See, the difference between the angry judge and Santa Claus is this. Santa Claus is there making a list. He's checking it twice, finding out who's naughty and who's nice. So there's a bit of a chance there that you can get on the, on the good list. He's acknowledging that, that some people are good on the list and some are bad. So with Santa Claus, it's kind of, okay, I'm looking at your performance. How do you perform? Are you performing good enough to be blessed, to be loved, to be accepted and so on? Or are you not? Are you on the naughty or the nice list? The thing with an angry judge is he doesn't care how you perform. You're guilty already before you even started. You're already guilty. He's already got the gavel raised. He's sitting up there in heaven and he's going to bring down judgment upon you because you are already guilty. Santa gives you a chance. The angry judge really, he doesn't. It doesn't matter how you perform, you're guilty. It doesn't matter what you do, it's never going to be good enough. Every time you say something, it's the wrong thing. Every time you do something, you should have done that. Every time you go right, you should have gone left. Because it doesn't matter what you do, you are already pronounced guilty in the courtroom of heaven. That's the image of the angry judge. A lot of people think that way. A lot of people see God like that. His sole purpose is to sit up there and to judge us. Like the image of the boy with the ants, and he's got the magnifying glass. You ever heard, seen that? And I don't know if you ever did it. When I was a kid, I used to do it, but I didn't use a magnifying glass. I'd fill a bottle with hot water, a spray bottle, and get direct line, and I'd sit there, and when the ants would go, I'd go, and they'd all curl up like this, you know? 
And I kind of, people think sometimes that that's what God is like. He's just waiting. He doesn't even need an opportunity. Just any random time he wants to because he's an angry judge. He'll just make things happen. He'll just do things. And it really doesn't matter what you do. You're never going to find favor with God. When we have that image of God as being the angry judge, we never, ever find peace because we're always performing. We're always trying to find a loophole. You can't have peace when you're living in a house with someone who's constantly angry with you. And when we have that image of God being this angry judge, it's very hard to find inner peace and hard to find peace with God. In fact, I'd say it's impossible for you to find peace with God if you think that God is an angry judge. The angry judge has a predisposition towards judgment. You know, I've got a mate of mine from uh, uh, Brisbane and he says stories about his childhood when he was growing up. And it was the classic childhood of it didn't really matter what you did, it was always wrong. You know, I remember a story when I was a kid and we lived in the western suburbs of Sydney. And I remember uh, one day I went down to the shops early morning to buy, I think it was a loaf of bread or something before school. And there was a guy in our street that was down there and he had a motorcycle helmet on. I thought it was strange because this kid's only, you know, he was only a couple of years older than me, probably, you know, 12, 13. And he had this massive big motorcycle helmet on down there sort of showing off to the kids. When I got home, this lady was in my house. It was just me and my mum. And this lady's asking the question. She's, she's relaying to my mother about how a motorcycle helmet was stolen. And she's describing the helmet. And just thinking I was doing the right thing, I said, oh, I, I just saw that Barry was wearing that helmet down in the street here. It was true. What I said was actually true. It's accurate and right. I went upstairs to start changing, uh, get my school uniform on. I got called, this angry voice of my mother, get down here. I came down and he was Barry's mother in my kitchen talking to my mum. And she said, my mum turns around and goes, did you see Barry down there with their helmet on? Because this lady had gone and spoken to this other woman. And I said, yeah, I did. My mother turned back to Robin. I still remember the names. And looked at Robin and Robin said, that's not true. My son wouldn't do that. My mother turned, looked at me and said, get to your room, you're in trouble. And she picked this other person who was, I guess, trusting their own son, but who was lying. The son was lying. I saw it with my own eyes but my mother sided with this person over her own child. And you know, sometimes we can kind of feel a bit like that with God. That it doesn't really matter whether you're telling the truth, doing the right thing, whatever. There's this thing where God is always going to find an angle with you that's wrong. He's always going to find something with you whereby which he won't believe you. He won't trust you. He doesn't want to, to bestow gifts upon you or blessing upon you or so on. He's always suspect of your motivation. He's always suspect of who you are, as if there's some hidden thing there that, that, that God's looking for. But God knows me inside and outside. He knows you inside and outside as well. But when we live with this concept of God, we never find peace with God and we never really find peace with ourselves as well. It's amazing how many people out there in the world think that way. How do we know that? Wait till there's a natural disaster and listen to what everybody says. You know? 9-11, planes go and fly and hit the building and what do we see? I, I can't tell you the amount of people coming out on social media and the amount of people talking and, and, and people going, well, where was God in this? Uh, and then I heard Christians coming out and saying this is the judgment of God upon the nation of America. Anyone read those articles here? That's not? This is the judgment of God upon the nation of America. And I remember at the time thinking, does that mean that America are the most heinous nation on planet Earth? Why is he doing that over here, yet we've got Muslim nations over here, nations where there are warlords who won't even give food to their own babies, and God seems to be letting them get away with it. But yet over here, here he is judging America, flying buildings, and this is the judgment of God. To be honest with you, it made me sick that people would even think like that. But there's this thing within us, when something bad happens, even unbelievers, there's something that gravitates towards, oh, why, why did God let that happen? 
By the way, I'm talking about a God I don't believe in, don't confess. But why did God let that happen? Yet it was amazing. 1984, I think, was when Los Angeles got the Olympics. I don't remember. I was only a little kid at the time, 12 years old. But I don't remember hearing everyone go, oh, praise God, we got the Olympics. God must be real because we got the Olympics. No, no, we, we, we have this natural bent to, to bend towards God when something bad happens and blame him. But when good things happen, they don't generally tend to go there. What does that tell me? It tells me that somewhere subconsciously in society, people actually attribute bad things to God and not good. We have a wrong concept of God. We think that God is this angry judge in the sky and anything bad that happens, we'll put his name to it because of course it had to be God because it was bad. But if it's good, we don't tend to gravitate towards that and see a blessing in that and attribute God to the good things that happen. Well, we just had a bumper rain season and we were in drought and now the crops are flying and they're growing and everything. And, but we don't go, oh, praise God, look at what God has done. But then when the drought comes, why won't God give rain? We, we, we tend to attribute the negative stuff and the bad stuff more to God than what people do the good stuff. Because I think deep down inside, they have this wrong concept and this wrong image of God. They don't see God in the good. We tend to see God more in the bad. I wonder what Billy Graham did that was so wrong. He contracted Parkinson's disease. I wonder what Billy Graham did. I wonder what was going on behind the scenes for Billy Graham to get Parkinson's disease, eh? I wonder. Well, it doesn't stand to reason. I mean, if, if everything bad happens that we attribute that to God, well, there must be something going on here. I don't know. It comes back to our concept and our image of God. Funnily enough, I never once heard Billy Graham say, you know, God gave me this disease to teach me something. Anyway, it's the way that people think. There's a distinct connection for many of us between the bad stuff of life and not so much with the good. Psalm 103, verse 8 to 17 says this. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Compassionate and gracious. (coughs) Slow to anger, abounding in love. I'm already struggling with the concept of an angry judge. Just reading that one verse is really kind of making me go, hang on a second, maybe, maybe God's not an angry judge. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I love this. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For, watch this. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. You know, when God looks upon us, he's aware of a couple of things. One, he's aware that he has immense, intense love for us, like a father's passion for a child. He has that straight away when he looks upon us. This compassion for mankind overtakes God. This great love that he has for us. He takes that, that, those sins, those things that we feel like are immovable objects that stay there. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes I feel like God takes our sin and throws it away. But you know what? We, we, we tie a rubber band to it. So when he turns his back, we can pull it back and justify. And justify why we feel the way we do about ourselves and about God. Justify why we feel like, why we can't accept his grace. Justify why we can't accept his love and so on. We hang on to these things. In, that, in one sense, we kind of make ourselves God above him in doing that. He loves us with a never-ending love. As a father has compassion on his children, Lord has compassion on us. He remembers that we are dust. You know, God made us. He formed us. He fashioned us. There's nothing about us that he does not know. Nothing about us that he does not know. And God understands that. 
when he looks down upon mankind. None of us in this room are perfect. None of you are perfect. I hate to burst your bubble. But none of you in this room are perfect, just as I'm not perfect, just as, 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 as there's nobody that has been born and breathed God's air on this planet and passed away apart from Jesus himself has lived a perfect life. If God wanted to be an angry judge, here's a reality, you wouldn't even be here right now. If God was an angry judge and he had the gavel up waiting for one opportunity or one reason to pound down upon us, we'd be pounded upon by now. We would definitely be a pile of dust. We would definitely be a memory on planet Earth if that was the way that God was predisposed towards judging us and towards being angry towards us. If he was that way, none of us would even be sitting here. So John 14, 9, Jesus says, If you look at me, see me, you've seen the Father. Did Jesus in his life display to us this image of a judgmental, angry God? Let's go to the very first passage where Jesus introduces himself to the world in terms of his call. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Can you act that up on the board there for me, Luke? Luke chapter 4. Luke, can you put Luke up? Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus stands up in the synagogue. The Bible says that he, he reached for the, for the scroll and actually says that he found the place where it was written. So he didn't just pick it up on the day and go, well, we'll just flip it. You know, some, you know people just flip it open and that's what, you know, ever used to do that when we first got saved. I used to do that. I used to open my Bible and say, God, you'll say something to me. I open it up and go, that's from the Lord. Look at it, you know. Well, Jesus hung himself. No, Judas, no. that can't be you, God. Sorry, give me another one, you know. He didn't do that. The Bible actually says he picked up the scroll and he found the place where it was written. He looked for it. He looked for that passage of scripture that spoke about him. That's what he did. And here's what he said. He found something that was written in the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. People in captivity are going to be set free. This is what Jesus came for. He came so that people could be set free. Doesn't, I'm, I'm just saying, it doesn't sound a lot like this image of an angry judge, this judgmental God waiting for you to make a mistake to pound you. I came to bring good news to the poor, proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind would see and oppressed would be set free. It doesn't sound to me like the image of this wild God, angry, judgmental God. And go back, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. You know, when Jesus came, he said, here's what I'm here for. I want to uh, liberate the poor and the oppressed. I want to open the eyes of the captives, those who are uh, spiritually blinded and, and, and blinded by materialism and blinded by the ways of the world. I want to open their eyes so they can see clearly the reality of God. I want to set people free from their bondages, from their addictions, from the things that hold them back from being fully human the way God intended them to be. The, the, the image that God had of us when it says, I formed you in your mother's womb, I fashioned you together, and I have a plan and a purpose for you. And then life takes its course and we get far away from that, and God goes, I'm going to set you free, take the chains and everything off so I can get you back on course and put you back on that path that's going to bring you great fulfillment and great fruit to the kingdom of God. This is what he wants to do. This was the proclamation that Jesus made. And to declare that the time of what? The Lord's judgment has come. Oh, hang on. Sorry, there's a mark on the screen. Sorry, he says the Lord's favour. My mistake. There goes my message. The time of the Lord's favour has come. Jesus came to say to people, people, we are now in a season of time where God is favourably looking upon humanity. 
He's looking upon you with favor. He's not here to judge you. He's not here to condemn you. He's not here to find what's wrong with you and nitpick at you. He's not here to point out the obvious, the flaws and the faults that you know about, even though people around you might want to do that. God says, I didn't come to do that. I came to declare you live in a time now where the favor of God is now upon humanity. Romans says it's the kindness of God, Romans 2.4, it's the kindness or the goodness of God that leads us to what? To repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads people to change and to turn their life around when they taste and see the Lord is good. None of this paints an image of a judgmental, angry God. Jesus came down to a nation in a time where if you read the Old Testament, you see all these things in place. I can understand why people think God's an angry God. If you took the New Testament out, yes, it makes sense under the time of law, yes. Because law is this, if you want favor, you will obey and do this. If you don't do this, you won't get favor. That's law. Paul writes in the book of Romans in the New Testament, we are now not under law anymore. We've been set free from the performance of what the law said. Do this and you'll be accepted. Don't do that, you'll be condemned. He says, we're free from that. We don't live in a law-based world anymore. We now live in a time of grace. Hey, Jesus put it this way. I've come to declare there's now favor on mankind. You are now under a cloud of grace if you'll just accept what has happened for you on the cross. If you'll just accept that, you're in a time and a season of favor. Now, what's really interesting about this is if you go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, which is the direct quote that Jesus is quoting from as he goes through the scroll. Can you whack that up there for me, Luke? This is, this is where Jesus went to in the scroll in the synagogue there. Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. And the next verse says, He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Jesus didn't finish the verse. He stopped right smack bang in the middle of the verse. I mean, you can't do that, can you? You can't stop mid-verse. He's taking it out of context. Jesus stops mid-verse. He says, he sent me to tell those who mourn, the time of the Lord's favor has come. We are living in the time of the Lord's favor. There will be a time where God's anger will come against his enemies. There will be a day of judgment, but read the Bible. We're not in the day of judgment yet. The day of judgment is down the track at the end of days, when time is up. When the Lord returns and he goes, I've given you as much time as I can to make right choices, and you still won't, time's up. Right now, we live in a place of the Lord's gracious favor. Jesus himself stopped mid-verse. I bet you I can imagine the Pharisee sitting there as he read this at first going, yes, preach it, brother, preach it, brother, preach it, brother, preach it, brother. And then he stops and they go, Flicking through their Bibles going, hang on. But, but God's anger is against his enemies too. And then getting in an uproar because Jesus goes, yeah, but it's not time yet. God is not an angry judge sitting up there waiting to condemn you and to smash you. Jesus stopped mid-sentence because it's not time yet. We live in the time of God's gracious favor. That's why you are so loved by God, devoid of your performance. Because it's grace and grace alone. 
That's why you can't win your way into relationship and the love of God and you can't win your way out. Because it's all based on one moment in history, the cross. It's all based on our acceptance of that moment in time that Jesus died on that cross for us. That's what gets us into relationship with God. That's what gets us into that place. It's like the prodigal son, the, the older son. You know, the younger one goes away and thinks, oh, I've screwed up, I've done everything wrong. God won't, my father won't love me anymore. I'm going to come home and be a slave. And he comes home, oh, me, I'm going to be a slave. Father goes, oh, forget that rubbish. You're my son. And the older brother sits there and goes, well, I did the complete opposite to him. I did everything right. I did all this and I never disobeyed you. I never... And he's angry, thinking, well, I, because of everything I did, I should have earned myself into that favour. And he goes, there's favour on you, not because you did bad or you did good. I'm the source of the favour, not you. The favour doesn't start with you. The favour starts with me. I'm God. I'm God. You, don't, uh, you didn't do anything to create the opportunity for salvation. You just accept it or reject it. You can't do anything to make it happen. It's already happened. We just accept it or we don't. That's the choice that we have to make. When we look at the life of Jesus, it's so evident that he was not an angry judge, that when he came, he really meant it when he said, the time of the Lord's favour is here. <laughs> the woman caught in adultery. He could have had her stoned. She broke the law. She did everything wrong. All the men were there going, she's done this, she's done this. Yes, of course. If I'm a judgmental God, guess what? It's dead right. I should, I should pick up a stone and start throwing it at the woman. But I didn't come here to bring judgment. I'm not here in, in a time of judgment. I'm here to bring the favour of God. So the favour of God to that woman at that time was, hey, you made a mistake, repent, move on, and I'll set you free. But you know what? The favour of God was also there for those religious hypocrites. Because also, if God wanted to, Jesus could have picked up stones and started throwing at them because of their spiritual pride and their arrogance. But he didn't. So they got favour as well. You know why? Because they got to drop their stones and walk away from that moment. That's favour even upon them. Both sides of the wheel got the favour of God in that situation. Both sides. He could have rebuked the woman at the well when she came to him and starts his conversation with him and he's there and he's talking and all of a sudden he finds out you've had five husbands. You have had five husbands. He could have at that point wiped his hands of her. He could have pronounced a judgment upon her. But he didn't. He didn't because he wasn't here. He didn't come here to start judging. He came here to declare, hey, you know what? Everything you've done, you, you, you're isolated from your community. You're ostracized from the people. You're out here in the middle of the day getting water because you can't come out in the cool of the day with the other women because you're like an outsider now. You're a germ. So you're out here in the middle of the day. You're the complete opposite and antithesis to everything I am. But he says, guess what? I want to tell you, you can still... Walk in and accept the Lord's favour. The Lord's favour is still here for you. Even though you've done all that stuff and you are the person you are, the favour of God is still available to you. So instead of judging her, he shows love, grace, compassion, mercy to her. And this woman runs off into town, changed woman. All of a sudden, all these people who want nothing to do with her, she runs in and goes, man, come and check out this dude. You guys dissed, you guys dissed me. You want nothing to do with me. This dude out here, man, he's way better than you guys. He accepted me. He knew everything you knew, but he loved me. You guys rejected me. You kicked me out. of. He, he, knows, he knew everything too. He, he knows more than what you guys know. There's some things I haven't even told you. He knew it, and he loved me. His favour, the favour of God upon her. Jesus, hanging on the cross, 
hanging on the cross, nails in his hands and his feet, having been beaten, whipped, wrongfully accused, having had all of his best friends desert him and run away from him in his most vital time of need. And hanging from that cross, he looks down. Here's what he sees, Roman soldiers gambling for his clothing. He sees criminals either side belittling and making fun of him. He sees religious leaders gloating and mocking. He sees a crowd that's blaspheming him. And what does he do? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, if he was an angry judge, I don't think he'd handle the case that way. He said himself, I could call upon legions of angels right now. And they could come down here and change this whole scene in a heartbeat. But I'm not here. It's not the time or the season of judgment right now. He says, I'm here to declare the Lord's favour. I'm here to show the gracious, compassionate favour of God and offer that to mankind. That's why I'm here right now. That's why I've come to this very moment. Second Peter chapter 3, I'll finish with this. Christy, I'll get you to jump up on the keyboard for me if you wouldn't mind. Second Peter chapter 3. It's an often quoted verse, but people don't actually take the time to stop and look at the context of what it's saying. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 3 and 4 says this, Second Peter 3. It says, Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Now this is happening between 30 and 60 years after the cross. People are already saying, When's this dude coming back? Jesus said he was going to come back. 30 to 60 years after it, people are already saying, you know what, it's not going to happen. He hasn't come back yet. Well, he's not going to, you know. I don't know about you, but if, 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 if my kids went, you know, Johnny said I'm going to get a bag of chips and I was still sitting there 60 years later, I'd probably give up on him coming back too. If your partner, your husband, your wife said I'm going down the road to get a, a carton of eggs, and 30 years later, you're still sitting on the porch waiting for them. <laughs> Hello. 30 to 60 years later, and people are already saying this. They're saying that he's not going to come back. They're saying, where is he? They're mocking. Saying, what happened to the promise that he's coming again? What happened to it? Go a couple of verses down, verse 8 and 9. Peter explains something really profound to us. He says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. <coughs> a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. Now what he's saying there is that we're trapped in human time. We understand the concept of human time. What he's trying to say is in, in eternal time, in the eternal time frame of God, it doesn't work like us. You know, the sun doesn't, God doesn't work on a 24-hour cycle like us where the sun comes up, the sun goes down, he wakes up, has breakfast, does a bit of work, has lunch, has a nap, has a meal. It's... it's we live in a human context, a human world, and human time frames. He's saying that God doesn't. He says, you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years like a day. If that's the case, 
then what he's basically saying, hey, he only, went out, he only left the building two days ago. It's kind of the point he's trying to make. It's not, you know, in God's economy, he hasn't even got out of the car on the other side yet. He's still waving to the crowds of people, cheering him on. In verse 9, he says, The Lord isn't really slow, being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Here's what he's saying. You're thinking that Jesus said he would come back and he hasn't and he's not keeping his word. Let me tell you why he's really not back. He's not slow and tardy like you think he is. He's not back yet because of his gracious compassion on humankind. God is actually withholding his day of judgment as long as he possibly can to give the most amount of people the opportunity to repent. He could come back right now if he wanted to. But I can picture him up there and the angels are ready to come down and deliver justice on the earth. And God's looking over the clouds and he's going, ah, just hold it, boys, just a little longer. There's more. Just a bit longer, people, there's more. Not yet, guys, sit down, sit down. Go get a glass of water and come back. I'm not ready yet. I still see lost people down there. I still see whole nations and tribes of people that don't understand the cross. They haven't heard the gospel yet. They don't get it. I see kids growing up in Western society. I see guys in, in Australia, young teenagers, who haven't understood the gospel. Have they heard the words of it? Yes. Has it been spoken in a language they understand? No. So because of that, because I'm, I love these people, and because I'm gracious and compassionate for them, just hold it off a bit, guys. I'm going to hold this thing off as long as I possibly can. I'm not being slow and tardy. I made a promise, and I'll do exactly what I said. But, but I love these people. And if I go down there now, I'm going to have to judge all this big group here. I don't want to do that because I'm not predisposed towards judgment and anger. I'm predisposed toward compassion, mercy, and love. So I'm going to hold it off. Does that sound like an angry judge to you? Does that sound like a God is waiting for you to slip up so he can pound you into the ground? (laughs) See, the message of the gospel is so beautifully simple. Love started with God, not with us. Matter of fact, it says we love because he first loved us. Everything started with him. Everything started with him. We're just respondents. We don't earn his love. He gave it to us. We just choose to accept it or reject it. We don't earn his favor. He makes the decision to give it to us. We then make the decision to accept it or to reject it. Is there a connection? Are there consequences for good and bad choices? Yeah, of course they are. But that's, that's life. If I tell my son not to put his face on the barbecue hot plate, and he does, am I a bad father? Now, if I grab him by the back of the head and push his face on it to teach him a lesson, hmm, I could be accused of that. I don't believe in a God that's running around putting Parkinson's disease on Billy Graham to teach him a lesson. I don't understand everything about sickness, disease and judgment. I don't understand everything about natural disasters. I don't understand all these things. I don't claim to. What I do understand is my Heavenly Father is a loving Father, a gracious Father, a compassionate Father. My Heavenly Father is the kind of guy that looks down upon the entire earth and goes, you know what, I'm not going to go yet because there's still one person here and I'm just not satisfied that they've had a chance.
just not satisfied they've had a chance. Let's all stand. God is not a cosmic killjoy out to kill your fun. God is not a Santa Claus expecting you to perform. And if you do it right, he'll bless you. And if you don't, he won't. God is not an angry judge actually looking for reasons to be mad at you and to punish you. Jesus showed us who God was by healing the sick, by raising the dead, by loving people that society said were unlovable, by reaching out to outcasts and bringing in those who were disaffected and, 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 and unloved by the world around them. Even people who got there by their own volition and choice. He still loved them. Jesus never got to a point where he said, you know what, you have now, that's it, you've now gone too far, that's it, but a gut full of you. Hanging on that cross as those guys are banging them nails into his feet. He could have easily looked down and gone, you know what, this is the last straw for you guys. This is the last straw. But he said, Father, forgive them, they don't get it. They just don't get it. What a beautiful, beautiful father. And you have made mistakes. And you have done things wrong. And there are people in this room with... You can relate to Paul when he says, I've got this thorn in my side, this thing in my life, and I just can't break it. And God keeps coming back to me saying, my grace is sufficient. But you go, no, grace is not enough. I've got to overcome this thing. Until I can snap this thing off my life, I can't accept the goodness of God. And God's going, don't work like that. I love you with an unending love. We need to accept that, people. We need to understand God like that. Because you will never have peace with God if you feel like in some way, shape or form you're constantly trying to get something from Him that He's already offered us. We have peace when we stand in a place of grace. That's where you will find peace. And until you can accept that place of grace, you will always be wrestling with the concept of God and trying to get something more from him when he's up there going, I'm your father. I couldn't love you anymore and I choose not to love you any less. If anything we've talked about in the last few weeks has struck a bit of a nerve with you, I'd love to pray with you this morning. Um, I know for me, this is probably one of the biggest topics of wrestle in my own heart because of my own upbringing. You know, I, I wrestle with the concept of God being a loving, good father at times. I know it's true because I choose to believe the word of God. But do I have moments where I do things and I struggle? Yes, I do. But I keep coming back to the word of God. You know, that's where my faith lies in this. I don't, I'm not trusting my feelings. I trust the word of God. It tells me this. I feel this way, but it tells me this. But it's a journey for many of us. If you'd like prayer this morning, I'd love to pray with you this morning. Otherwise, you know, feel free to head off and have a fantastic, great week. Father, I just pray for each of us in this room today, God. I thank you. Your grace, your mercy, your compassion. I thank you, Lord, that we can come before you, God. Jesus said uh, we could call you Abba Father, the most intimate of terminologies of a little child to his father, looking up into his daddy's eyes with great love, and saying, Daddy, Daddy. And we thank you for that opportunity this morning that we are your children, devoid of performance, 
not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of your tremendous, outlandish, unbelievable grace. Holy Spirit, I pray you just seal in each of our hearts the things we've been hearing and the things we've been thinking about, Lord. When we walk out of this room, I pray that we wouldn't just move on to the next thing, but we would, we would think about what you've been speaking to us over these weeks, what you've been saying to us, Lord. Let it germinate, let it grow, let it produce fruit in our lives and beyond, God. Father, keep us safe for the rest of the week. And Lord, I pray that uh, in the next seven days, you give each of us an opportunity to show somebody else the reality of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Uh, Enjoy connect groups if they're on this week. If you're interested in knowing more about connect, come and see us.